time for another episode of The Epic Narrative. Thanks for coming. Here's my dad, Bob Switzer. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are ready to rock and roll right now in the Epic Narrative because I am trying to deal with the creation of man. Holy cow. You would think this was simple. I'll tell you for many, 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 many. I say that really fast because I know a lot of people listen to me at either 1.5 or double speed because it turns out I talk rather slow. So I thought I'm going to do something really fast just to throw them off a little bit. So (laughs) I hope you enjoyed the little soiree into fast talk. All right. So I'm going to deal with with the creation of man and I'm going to deal with it as it is written in the narrative of the Bible. Now, as you watch what's going on here, you, there's there's just nuances. It, 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 trust me, this used to be so simple for me because I only looked at, you know, I grew up with only one stream of influence, and that was uh, w- what is often called, you know, a seven-day literal creation and a, sh- uh, not short earth, a young earth theory, all right? Now, there are those who literally have lived and died on that on that uh, concept. Like, there is no way that the Bible can, can be describing anything except 24-hour days of creation and one single creation. Now, I, I, I love the fact that people are so passionate about the Bible. I do. I'm, I, am, I, I am not going to try and disprove this. I'm not. But I was, I was, I was challenged. Uh, you know, there was a few, but not even a few years ago. I, I just, I just, I don't even remember who it was, but I do remember the emotional upheaval I felt when a person who is of good reputation, excellent uh, character, uh, somebody who is well educated, seminary graduate who I was friends with in a, in, a, in a very casual way, brought up the fact, from from his perspective, the fact that God used evolution for creation. And I remember sitting, and internally I had this incredible, like, like wait, what? How, how could, I, I thought this man loved Jesus. I thought he knew the Bible. I thought he went to seminary. How? How, how how can this be? So rather than separate myself from them, which unfortunately so many people have learned in Christendom, I, will, I, I shouldn't say Christendom. I should really say in religious mindsets, right? You separate from things that, that, that you think are a threat to the truth. But I was intuit- I'm intuitively wired. Not I was. I am intuitively wired for relationship. And I sat there and thought, I've got work to do. Me. Because I don't want to stand here, sit here uh, with this person and turn this into a debate of either you agree with me or we no longer fellowship because your ideas are a threat to my belief system. I've always believed, and I remember this even the, even as a child listening to, uh, watching Star Trek, like the original Star Trek with Captain James T. Kirk and Spock and Bones. I I remember there were there were people, and 
what's what's freaky to me is that I couldn't have been more than eight years old. But I remember thinking, if my belief in God, in Jesus, can't handle the straight anti-God message of these shows, then what am I doing? I don't know why I why that resonated with me as a child. I was born in 65. I know that the show came out, I think, and uh, it was it only had like two, the original only had, I think, two seasons. And then it became popular like years later, but enough about the show. Anyways, I just, I, I guess at some level, deep inside me, there's always been something that said, if what you believe can't handle the questions, then what you believe isn't, isn't worth believing in. Well, that's a good, I should have wrote that down. That ha- that can't be, that can't be my idea. That, I'm sure somebody else has written that down. If what you believe in can't handle being questioned, then what you believe in isn't worth believing. Because it's it is it's it's just the way it is. So, anyways, I just remember thinking, all right, I gotta see if I gotta I gotta figure this out. And I remember finding books, literature, where there were Christians who believed in evolution and i read their oops sorry i just hit the mic uh anyways my wonderful producer brian will probably take that out and that little apologies will mean nothing to anyone uh anyways i I just remember reading it and going oh my goodness there is more than one option well now what am i going to do with that so I stuck with the, the seven-day creation and the short uh, young earth theory because, honestly, I liked it. I liked it better. I liked it because, for me, it meant God was bigger and powerful. And I always like visions and pictures of God that make him bigger and more powerful. Uh, and I just think a, a, a quick creation like that does that for me. But I've met other people since then who are passionately uh, you know, passionately evolutionists and passionately lovers of God. And I know they're going to heaven. And they believe that evolution speaks to the greatness of God, to the to his patience, to his his intricacy. Like they see all throughout the what they consider the evidence of evolution, they see constant reminders of how great God is. And then I hit a third theory. And this one, I this one I, I discovered in the last year while I was studying for Genesis. And I spent weeks on this because I was like, I have never heard this one. And the guy who was who was kind of the main proponent of it, so I listened to a lot of his teachings. I sat there and I went, oh my goodness, he makes so many good points. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Now, the points he made, I thought, brought about an even greater, more powerful God than what I thought my my beliefs did. So now I'm like, holy smokes, I don't know what I believe, but I do know this. As always, we're going back to the beginning. Your beliefs regarding the creation and creation of man should always bring you back to God, not separate you from man. And so many people take their beliefs in, in the creation of man and the creation of the universe, and they use it to separate from people. That is not the goal. That is not the goal of Scripture. It is not the goal of God. 
it is uh, oh, oh bob you're going to preach you're going to preach but okay i won't preach but just remember if we all go back to one place we all come from that place we were all created and known by god in that place in the beginning and out of the beginning everything that was created was created and jesus was there for he was there in the beginning and the beginning was the word and the word was god and the word is god and and all that is and all that exists exists because of him and jesus taught us if they were going to be unified we're unified together in god in jesus through love and, and the evidence is the way that we love one another. If you are so passionate about your beliefs regarding creation that you're willing to separate from people in order to prove your point, then you've missed the point of creation. The point of creation is to draw us back to God. The point of creation is to see the unity that we have in our creator. Creator, if you want to say it in an accent. And that's all the preaching for today. Let's get on with the verses. Because Lord have mercy, we have got some verses to cover. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we left off at, at verse 26. All right, yeah, I'm oh, sorry, we left off at 25. So in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give every, listen to this, God said, I give every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath in of life in it, I give every green plant of food uh, for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And it was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array, and on the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, and on the seventh day he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from the work of creating that he had done. That's actually the first three verses now of Genesis chapter 2. Let's break it down. God creates men. One or two of them. I don't know. It sure does look like he only created one. And he had the ability to do what? To reproduce. So everything that was needed was within the first creation. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So he created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created the, he them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So the earth is filled with life at this point, right? All the plants are blooming and producing fruit and, and, and seeds and replanting and expanding. There is nothing forbidden on the earth. Remember that phrase. Remember what I said? 
He said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. Now keep these things in mind because it's different from chapter from the rest of chapter 2. Just saying. Pay attention. No forbidden things on the earth. No food was was forbidden. No plant was forbidden. No animal was forbidden. You could eat them all. Man's job was to be fruitful and multiply and rule over all things. And when God says it was all good, when he looked over everything on the sixth day and it was all good, it was good, what he means is that everything was working as it should. Now remember, if the day is as long as it takes, if the day is, is not your 24-hour day, but even if it is, what God is saying when he said in verse, in verse 31 of chapter 1, and it was, it, and he looked over all he had made, and it was very good. What he means is that everything was functioning as it should be, which means everything was multiplying like it was created to do. It was producing fruit, it was producing seed, and it was producing more plants. That includes Adam in that phrase. It means Adam was able to create and to reproduce himself as he was created to do because Adam was commanded to be fruitful and no multiply. And it says, in the image of God, he created him, the, he them, male and, male, and, blah, 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 male and female, he created them. But it's a singular thing. He, he contained everything necessary. Now you could say, no, 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 Bob. He created both of them. We just get more details later. And I would say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to die on this. I'm not going to fight you on that. You're right. Later in chapter 2, he does create two things. He creates Adam and Eve. Well, technically, well, yes. Anyways, we'll get more to that in a minute. Oh, yes. Everything's complete. Everything's available. Everything is, uh, yeah, there's no restrictions on any plant that he can that he can eat. That's different, right? It's different because in chapter 2, we have some restrictions. And he rested on the seventh day. So did he rest 24 hours? You see, once again, how you want to translate and interpret that word day is really important because if it's not 24 hours, it means he rested for as long as he wanted. The pattern was six days you work, one day you rest. Rest as long as it takes. Now, when he said the phrase, let us make, it is, it is, it's everybody. It's the Trinity. It's it also ties him into, when he says, let us make, that phrasing calls into union everything that's come out of the beginning. All of creation is drawn into that phrase, let us make. This is, this is the beginning of quantum physics. This is that in, in, in uh, the inner influence of all things being tied together 
And we can, again, I'm trying to avoid going, you know, turning this into some crazy long, I, I just don't want this to be a dissertation. I really don't. There are, there are plenty of materials on this, but within this, within the story, I, I keep wanting to go back to the beginning. I always want to go back to God. This is all about him. And, and within this, he's saying, I'm going to tie everything together. In quantum physics, we see stuff like, like you can take the DNA and put part of it, put, put, a, put a piece of DNA on Earth and send the other piece of DNA like on a rocket into the outer space and somewhere around Mars. You can do something to the DNA on Earth and it will immediately also be done to that same DNA out by Mars. Like it's instantaneous. It's as though they are in the same space. That's quantum physics. And there's all kinds of really fun movies about it, but <laughs> time travel and, and connections through various spiritual planes. And you can, you can break down creation of all of chapter one, and you can also break down uh, those who want to those who want to see multiple planes, spiritual planes being being created in this time. But the quantum connection happens in real time regardless of distance because of the quantum physics. And this is where we see it in creation is when he said, let us make. It's more than just a trinity. It's all of creation being called into effect, into the creation of man. Wow. All right. So verse four of chapter two, there's a shift in the language. This is not debated by anyone. It just depends on the, on the way, you know, how you're going to inter interpret and then translate, translate and then interpret the words that you use. So in chapter two, verse four, it says, this is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Now the following verses do not match up with chapter one. They just don't. They have a different language, and it seems culturally that this is a different account in that it's a different creation. It's a second creation. Now, for some, that that causes you know deep. You you probably already shut off the podcast. Going, Bob has lost his mind. He does not believe in God. He does not believe in the Word of God. I cannot listen to a man who's who's preaching heresy. That's fine. You're already gone. For the rest of us, just open yourselves up to that possibility. That during the seventh day, now this goes way back, not way back, but a few podcasts ago, right? There's some people who believe that Lucifer, Satan, fell from heaven between verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, right? Where it says, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and God, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So some believe that that's when Lucifer fell from heaven, from, fell from heaven. But here again, you have, to, you have to interpret in your head. Doesn't mean he fell from heaven, never to return. It doesn't mean he fell from his position in heaven. Because there's other indications that say he's still in heaven accusing the brethren. Like there's still this interaction between him and God. Where he still, uh, ha, you know, has access. He's not, he's not on lockdown. So with that in mind, 
let's let's kind of continue. I know I know some of you are like, whoa, 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 Bob, can I ask more questions? Yeah, as always, you can ask more questions. I, I don't mind that. I just I just don't know how deep I'm going to go because to me, there's so much written on this stuff that if you want to go deep, I want to encourage you to go deep. I want you I want to encourage you to ask the question, what if, and then go find out what if. Don't just go to your own personal belief systems. Question your belief systems and see if they're worth believing. So what happens, what maybe, maybe, what if Lucifer fell after, after the seventh day? What if it was the seventh day when God was resting, whatever that means, from all that he created? He's looking down at all of his creation, and specifically man who reflects all of that creation, which would make him different than any other creation in the universe, any other spiritual spirit being, any other alien being. As far as we know, we're the only ones that God created in his image to reflect the creator and all of creation. So what if while God is resting is when Satan saw an opportunity to take on the big guy and rule over all that God had created? And then attacked it, like just tried, just just destroyed everything. Tried to destroy everything that reflected God. And God's like, hmm, you know, uh, that this battle isn't going to last long. I'm way bigger than you. And he and he demoted him. What if he demoted Lucifer and didn't necessarily kick him out? What if he demoted Lucifer? Because what is one of the main characteristics of the goodness of God? The goodness of God is about restoration. The goodness of God is about resurrection. The goodness of God is about healing. Why would he not have that for one of his massive angels? If you want to read about angels outside of the Bible, read the third book of Enoch. I mean, you can read all the books of Enoch. They're all interesting. But, man, that third book of Enoch blew my freaking mind of the descriptions that were given there of angels. And from, you know, from, from what I've read in history, the book of Enoch was very close to being in the canon when the, quote, the, the, the scriptures were decided upon. I think it was at the Council of Nicene. And there's all kinds of histories that you could point to and say, well, you know, that was that, that was heavily influenced by this or that, these politics, this king, this this bribed pope, that bribed bishop, yada yada yada, whatever. I I believe the Bible. I do. I believe the Bible clearly. I mean, for me, it's clear, anyways. But the Book of Enoch was very close to getting in. It's not scary. I don't think there's any blaspheming in it, but holy cow, did it have a description of heaven that just blew my mind. Especially the third book when it came to the angels, which was basically a story of Enoch traveling through like layers of the heavenlies, just one spiritual plane after the other, and what each one kind of did, and what the angels looked like when on those planes. And okay, enough about that. So what if this is when Satan attacked God and he decided to go after Earth and destroy it 
and God had to recreate it. Because look at the order of this. Verse 3, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had sprung up. For the Lord had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. Listen, in the first account, that you know, coming up from the ground was not the option. Coming up from the ground was not discussed. The first one was, boom, it happened. This one, he's like, hmm, the earth needs some, some gardening. And he talks about streams that came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Wait, that does not sound like the earth. That looks like our planet. This sounds like a different earth, a different level, like a different plane. Could it be? Could it be? That's all I'm saying. It could. I, I think linguistically it could be. Now, now you have to do something with it. You either have to turn the language into an artistic expression, a poetic expression, which is fine so that you can, you know, keep the belief system you have, or you have to look at it and say, maybe, maybe there's more than one. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Wow. Again, not the same way it's described a few verses earlier. And when it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, it, it's that same concept, literarily speaking, of, of the spirit hovering over the waters of chapter, of chapter 1, verse 2. The hovering over the top. He, he breathed in. He literally hovered there. And he, he released the breath of life into man. And when man breathed out he he breathed back out god like it was it was a full exchange of the of the being of the spiritual being and let's be clear the dust of that earth it's not the dust that you and i know right it's not like uh, i know what's the comp the basic composition of dust here on earth like it's it's pretty much gross stuff right it's like dead it's like dead skin dead hair follicles, uh, you know, dead nails, dead uh, um, dandruff. Uh, it's just nasty. It's just nasty. Dust is just nasty. That is not what he created us from. That No, no. Because of the rivers that are here, we see that one of them is named uh, Pishon. Pishon means red. It, it literally is a color that, that occurs when Water runs over gold dust. It turns red. There is every indication that this particular creation of man from the dust of the ground is he was created from gold. And after, after he did this, it says, Now the Lord planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put man he had formed. And there the Lord made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground and trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, he put a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Whoa. 
and we have we have a river watering the garden that formed into four separate headwaters and he gives the names of all those and the lord took man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it to expand the garden where onto earth where everything had been dead there hadn't been any plant that had sprung up and then he reinstructs man and he says you are free to eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of that you will certainly die and god said it is not good for man to be alone i'll make a helper suitable for him now before he did that verse 19 the lord had formed out of the ground the wild out of where out of the ground wait no in chapter one he had just spoke the word and it happened here he's forming them out of dust out of dirt Wild animals, all the birds of the sky, brought them to man to see what he would name them. Whatever he called them, each was a living creature. Why? Because when the when man breathed out, he was breathing out God. He was breathing out creative energy. He was breathing out quantum physics. He was breathing out life and light. And what he named them became not just their name, but their character. He gave them an identity. And he gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper found. So God caused man to fall asleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and he closed up the place of of the flesh. Now, God says in verse 18, it's not good for him to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then he waits until uh, verse 21 to actually create Eve. And he creates him out of man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, wow, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman and she will be taken, for she was taking, taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his mother and father and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. And Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. Wow. So animals were formed from the ground. God sees a partner in Adam. He, and, and, and he says, okay, I'm going to wait to form her until after he's done. And Adam planted the earth from the garden. He populated the earth from himself. He sent all the animals he named to the earth. This is, this is what was going on in Eden. Potentially, if you just read it the way it's written, Eden is a is a different place. And the garden is in the east of Eden. And the rivers come from Eden and flow to the earth. They water the earth so that the plants will grow. Adam was very busy. We don't know how long these were, unless you believe in the 24-hour day theory and that you have this artistic, uh, literary poetry in which God kind of retells the story one chapter after he already told the story, which is fine. Or you believe in evolution in which all of this is occurring through tens of millions of years. And again, God's just trying to condense it into a few verses so that you kind of know what in the world's going on. I get it. I do. Or you have this other theory. Listen, whatever theory you're going with, it all has to take you back to God. 
But if you just read it, what's what's there? God, Adam plants everything in the garden. He populates the garden. He sends all the animals to the earth after he names them. And then Eve is formed from Adam. And he's still in Eden. He's still in Eden, specifically in the Garden of Eden, which is in the east of Eden. And he says, now, when you bring forth life, you do it the same way. You be, you you unite into one flesh. What does that mean? You hover over one another, just like God did for Adam, just like just like the Spirit of God did over the uh, the over creation. It's it's uh, it's not just sexual in nature, but there is an element of intimacy that occurs in the phrasing of this. You hover over one another to create life. You overshadow one another like God did of the deep to start creation. That's what God did over Adam. He did it over creation. And now he's like, you do that over each other and you create life. And this is why a man leaves his mother, father and mother and is united with his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve are working at populating and gardening the earth from a place called Eden. Now, I totally understand, I do, I totally understand if you believe, you know, the garden was here on earth, there has been, you know, tons of historical evidence of people seeking it and finding it. One particular uh, book that I, I, I just thought they did a great job of breaking it down called Legend, The Genesis of Civil- Civilization by David Roll, R-O-H-L. Anyways, he, he gives a I – only, I'm only able to say that because I still have it on my desk, which is where I'm now recording. And <laughs> I was like, oh, I should tell people about this. But he describes – he describes this – uh, this in, in, in incredible detail, the story of a man who, an archaeologist who went after the Garden of Eden, and he believes he found it. It was it was walled on three sides sides with basically a wall, like you couldn't. Incredibly difficult to get to, but once you got in this valley, it was lush with rivers that flowed from the fourth side was basically a uncrossable marsh that formed several rivers into the valley, which made the, the valley incredibly lush for vegetation and would have easily sustained tens of thousands of people. But if you wanted to kick them out, it would have been easily defensible because of how steep the walls were slash mountains were around this place. It's, it's like, it's no joke. And I saw the pictures, and although it's you know a deserted desert at this point, I thought, wow, like legit, this is legit Garden of Eden. You know the legends, the the uh, the writings on the wall, like like this guy was like straight out of an Indiana Jones movie. The stuff that he followed up on until he you know drives in and this on the Land Rovers with you know all the the photography equipment and. 
and taking evidence of like, wow, we found it. We found the Garden of Eden. And I say to him, awesome. Awesome. And maybe that was the Garden of Eden. Maybe somewhere in there was the two trees that they were they were forbidden to eat. Or potentially Adam planted a garden to mimic the place where he lived, which would be in the Garden of Eden, in the garden on a plane called Eden, on a spiritual plane called Eden. Or perhaps it's just a poetic concept in order to explain uh, where life came from in evolution. Listen, I again, I'm not, I'm not here to argue. I want you to be blessed with the idea that our God is big, our God is powerful, our God is good, our God is light, our God is love. And that didn't stop, or I shouldn't say stop, that didn't start sometime in the New Testament with Jesus. He's been that way from creation, from the time that we that everything came out of this thing called the beginning. And from this place called the beginning, God created us. And he created maybe more than once throughout time. And every time he does it, remember that as regardless how many times you think he created, man was created unique from any other creature that may or may not exist, depending on your opinion, in the universe. We're different because we were created in the image, in the connection of creation. All the Trinity and all of creation from the beginning is tied into what we carry and it would be desperate on the enemy's part for us to pretend that we are just an animal that we would that we we're just a bunch of random acts of chemical connections and energy that that kind of floated into each other by chance Trust me, everything the enemy does is to take us away from the beginning, to take us away from the power of the love and the light of our creator, to take us away from an understanding of our identity as children of God. So regardless of your opinion, theory, beliefs, on chapters one and two of Genesis, I want you to never forget who you are and I want you to pursue it, pursue the rhythm of and frequency of light and love. Pursue the beauty and bounty of God and incorporate that into your everyday life. Find ways to connect to it at deeper and deeper levels because that is something that I believe creation groans for. Going back to the New Testament, all of creation is groaning for the sons of men to understand who they are because it'll revolutionize this creation when we enter into that place.
All right, I know. I'm I'm done for today. I hope you had a fabulous time running through. Man, we covered so many verses today. I am very proud of you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> the engineer just sat there dumped out. He literally interrupt me once today. He's he's impressed. I'm impressed. He's impressed. If nothing else, you might be confused, but you should be impressed with the amount of verses we covered and. Next time in the Epic Narrative, we are going to enter a brand new chapter. And I hope you enjoyed it. Have a great day, everyone. Don't leave just yet. We've got Bob Thoughts. All right. What are my thoughts on, on this week's episode? Episode four. It's a... Uh, uh, really the main thing that popped out of me, and then we covered a lot of different options on creation, and I appreciate those of you that are willing to at least kick them around, and I'm sure a few of you have a few questions, and some of you might just have dismissed some of those options as saying no, and that's fine. Like, at least at least you took the opportunity to listen, and I do appreciate that. I do, and we can, uh, we, after... I think, yeah, as these episodes go on, like we actually get into the, the story, the stories of Genesis, and most people, you know, are familiar with those, but generally speaking, this early part of Genesis was kind of difficult, not difficult, it, yeah, it was, I had to be self-conscious and disciplined not to turn it into a into uh, too much of a theological uh, exegesis of scripture, but to try and keep it as a narrative, which is what we're here to do, right, on the epic narrative. So the thing that jumped out at me on this week's episode that I just want to touch on today is is the word day can be interpreted as as long as it takes. In that concept of as long as it takes was the day of rest. And I didn't say much about it, but I wanted to spend some time now uh, just kind of re regurgitating that a little bit. So the day of rest could have been a 24-hour day. I, I understand that. But it could also be mean as long as it takes. And I think a lot of people uh, don't know how long it takes for them to actually feel rested. Now, I don't know, uh, you know what, what it means for you. I do know that there are many who refuse to take more than a day of rest. And I've met them. They're in ministry. They're in business. Uh, they just, they're like, we got to keep grinding. We got we to keep being successful. We can rest when we're dead. We can rest when we get to heaven. We can rest when when there's no more work to do. And and I know that there are uh, scriptures where, that they hang on to for that sort of thing. Work for the, you know, for the day cometh when no man will work. Uh, uh, look into the harvest for it is, you know, is plentiful and and ready, uh, ripe, ripe for the reaping. So it's like, I, I got to keep working. I got to keep working. There's work to do. There's work to do. There's work to do. But you look at, you know, the life of Jesus and he took a lot of days to rest. And it was not every day nose to the grindstone, preaching, teaching, that sort of thing. There was a lot of opportunity to hang out and have fun with him and his disciples and his followers and and that sort of thing. So the the examples are there. And I think the, 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 the definition of that word day allows for more than just one day. I, I know guys who fight the concept of, of like a sabbatical, like literally just taking months 
to kind of regroup, reimagine, uh, renew. That's what I'm doing, right? I'm, I'm out here for probably a year. Resigned my job, sold the house, bought an RV. Like we're on the road for a year. I'm currently standing in my niece's husband's office doing this little uh, this little ditty of, of Bob thoughts. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going next. I don't know how long I'll be on the road. But I'm confident now that I'm outside of my job and I don't have one. <laughs> And I am on the road and in, you know, in dialogue with my wife and with people around me and observing life uh, of family and friends. It's, it's the untangling in my brain that's allowing creative thought and renewed uh, ideas for the church and for ministry and for the kingdom, like what it looks like and how it operates it's fascinating how quickly these, these things are coming and how when you have a job and you have responsibility, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but when you have it, you automatically limit your imagination to fit within those boundaries. So I think it's very valuable to sit back and have a day of rest, whatever that means, whatever the, you know, uh, uh, the word day means for as long as it takes. To be able to... to consider and reconsider and reimagine whatever it is that you want to. It could be about your family. It could be about your business. It could be about your schooling. All those things can come into play when you're at rest. I remember the first time we took like a two-week vacation. Somebody was like, you need two weeks. We were like, no, 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 you know, wait. One week's all we need. I'm fine after a week. And we took those two weeks. And I remember the the difference it made in our in our in our bodies and in our spirits and in our minds to have the full two weeks. And now who knows how long we're gonna be, quote, on vacation. But as you know, when you're on vacation, like there's still this mindset where somewhere along the line you start to gear back into work. You start to gear back into family. You start to and I'm and I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying there is that reconnection that has to take place. But those times away, those that day away, as long as it takes time away to untangle and, and be able to truly release your mind from any of the boundaries that come with the responsibilities of everyday life, I think is really important. I think God taught us that when he took a day of rest. He took as long as it took to be rested. And uh, that's a principle. I, do people take advantage of it? Uh, probably some, yeah, right? Some don't work at all. Oh, I need more rest. I need more rest. I need I need time to imagine. I know, I know. Uh, there's abuses that can take place on every level, both with overwork and overrest. But for now, just remember that a, the day of rest doesn't necessarily just mean a 24-hour period of time. It can mean for as long as it takes for you to truly feel the uh, renewing of your, of your spirit and of your mind. So I hope that helps you out today. I uh, hope uh, to see you again next week on The Epic Narrative. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.